I just want to say thank you on behalf of our family for all the kind words, all the acts of service, all the food, and there has been lots and lots of food. For the hugs, for the stories, for all the support that you have provided our family in what are some of the hardest days we've ever faced. Yesterday, today, and probably every day going forward, will be marked with sadness and with grief, but they are not hopeless days. And so my goal is to speak to you a word of hope this evening, Mom, and Tori, and everyone here. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, I do not want you to be ignorant, but I want you to be informed of the hope that we have so that you do not grieve as those with no hope. It hurts. It stings. We hate it, but we have hope. This hope the Apostle Paul is talking about comes from what the Bible says is the gospel or sometimes is referred as the good news. This is the announcement that in the person of Jesus, God has done everything required for sinners to be saved. This hope has sustained our family in the final days of dad's life. This hope of the gospel will continue to sustain us in the days ahead. This hope uniquely belongs to the covenant people of God. That is to say, those people who are trusting in Jesus to save them by his grace through faith in him alone. This hope is yours if you believe that. Now, I'm not here as a disinterested third party. But I'm here because this was my dad. I was named after him. My name is Robert Lee Plemons III. But you can call me Robbie, or you can call me Uncle Chubbs. I'm the pastor of Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. Yesterday was the highlight of my pastoral career. I got to stand and read the Word of God. Proclaim the promises that are given to us as his people and to comfort my family as we said goodbye to my dad. It's a sober responsibility to hold out the truth of God's word both yesterday and then here tonight. But it's my belief, my hope that God's word will bring comfort to those who've been crushed in spirit. I didn't expect to be here today. I don't think anyone ever really does, and there's no class in seminary where they teach you how to preach your dad's funeral. But yet you and I know that death is a part of the human experience, and as hard as we try not to face that reality, there are some days when you no longer can do that. On Friday, January 18th, in the middle of the afternoon, dad died, and our family was no longer afforded the privilege of living with any other illusion. He's gone from us, but he is not gone. Now, Dad was known to lots of people in lots of different ways. Some of his classmates from high school are here. He was known to my mom as her husband for 46 years. He was my dad for 43. He was daddy to my sister for 36. He was a father-in-law to Philip and to my wife, Lori. But his favorite thing, the thing that he was most proud of, 
was he was boo-boo. Long before any of us ever had grandchildren, they knew they wanted to be called Nana, Nana, and Boo-Boo. So that when their grandkids went to school and had to tell what they did for the summer, they could say, well, we went to Nana, Nana, Boo-Boo's all summer. (laughs) Nana, Nana became Nana. Boo-Boo stayed. I still remember when we found out we were pregnant with our first child. This was before social media, before the big gender reveal parties and everything like that. But we knew we wanted this to be a special occasion, so we went and bought this small stuffed bear and had a picture frame. And we typed up a little piece of paper that said, insert photo of first grandchild here. We invited mom and dad to meet us in Tupelo at Cracker Barrel for lunch. And so we drove over and we gave them this present and mom immediately knew exactly what it meant. But mom being mom, she started to cry and couldn't really talk. And our dad sat there. And it took him a little while. It took him a little while, and and then finally when it dawned, his life was forever changed. He loved his grandkids. He was boo-boo to H.M. or Hattie Margaret for 15 years. To my son Hudson for 13. To my niece Bellan for 9. And my nephew Micah for 3. Tonight we mourn, we shed tears of grief, but most importantly, we celebrate. We celebrate and we're thankful for the life of my dad. We laid his body to rest yesterday, and it was hard. Even though we knew that wasn't him, it was hard for us to wrap our heads around because, as my sister said, those were the hands that she held. When my mom closes her eyes, that's the face that she sees of her husband. They were the arms that hugged his family. Friday, January 18th was the end of something that shaped us all profoundly. That is the life of Robert Lee Plemons Jr. here on earth. And while that was the end of something very beautiful, it was also the start of something far greater than we can ever comprehend. Now I'm a part of the Reformed tradition I'm a pastor of a Presbyterian church, and we have what we call catechisms, and they're systematic teachings that we use to instruct God's people in what we believe. What is it the Bible teaches us about various topics? Systematic summaries called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and in chapter 32, and speaking of the things in the end that we refer to as eschatology, we read this about death. The bodies of men after death return to dust. And see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect of holiness, are received into the highest heaven, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, and they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. So while being a time of bitter sweetness for us who remain in this life, It's a great and glorious time for my dad. Our family can no longer treat the gospel and the promise of the resurrection as an abstract ideal. Now it is the one hope that we cling to. That what God has promised in the person of Jesus, he has made real for our dad right now. The idea of the resurrection with dad's death has been introduced in the fabric of our family in a way that we never thought was possible. So tonight, we remember my dad as the wonderful gift of God that he was to each and every one of us. 
We have come to celebrate his life that was given to him by God, but also the life that was given to him in Christ Jesus. See, my dad's life was changed by Jesus. Jesus gave him hope, and tonight we need that same hope. So if you would, I would like to read to you a passage from John's Gospel, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Skipping down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he had found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews were with, him, were with her in the house, consoling her, he saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And so Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by, the time, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strip and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Now in our text today, we have this wonderful story of two sisters and a brother. 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, quite ordinary people until this man named Jesus enters into the story. So that's the thing. When Jesus enters into a life, things change. Ordinary people become extraordinary because of the love of God that is visited upon them. So Jesus comes to the town, the town of Bethany, and he enters into their life, and they are not the same people. Jesus came into my dad's life when he was in his mid-twenties. My dad was ordinary. I don't say that negatively. That's just the truth. I'm ordinary. He was at least 6'3". I'm 5'10". In a world of 7 billion people, almost every single one of us are ordinary. We get up. We go to work. We try as best as we can to love our families, to pay the bills, to do what we feel God has called us to do. But we're just ordinary people. That's who my dad was. But Jesus came into my dad's ordinary life. And through everything he experienced, he never left my dad. And he has not left my dad now. Faithful pastors, men and women who loved the word of God, taught him some of the most important truths. The truth that Jesus is a friend to sinners. The truth about my dad's own sinfulness and about the grace of God that he experienced. Through the years, he was a member of First Baptist Church Nesbitt, Trinity Baptist Church in South Haven, and in the final chapter of his life here at Longview Point. I'm thankful for this church. I don't know many of you, but I love this church for the way you love my dad, especially the way you've loved my mom. He was my dad, and so he wasn't objective, and the favorite sermons he liked to listen to were ones where he would go online and listen to me. My dad was not a perfect man. He was not a perfect husband. He was not a perfect father. But the truth is, none of us are. And the good news is that because of Jesus, we don't have to pretend to be something we're not. As we have cried and laughed over the last several days, we remembered stories. Stories of a sixth grade Robbie who was playing baritone and beginner band. And his dad, because he loved him, drove us to Whitehaven in order to find the musical supplies that I needed. In the midst of a parking lot, as we tried to locate the store we were, we were trying to find, he took his eyes kind of off the road or the parking lot and he crashed into a concrete light pole. If any of you remember, we used to have a 1973 blue satellite Sebring called the Smurf Mobile. That was the car he crashed that day. It bothered him. It bothered them that he had done something so stupid, but it didn't stop there. We got back to my grandmother's. We all went inside, and he started to kick and curse the car. He said things that were unkind at times. But he was a good dad. He was a good husband. He took us to air shows to see the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. He umpired Little League baseball games. He would take us to work with him. When we'd go pick up our mom in the evenings when she would finish her shift at Bell South or AT&T, as the name changed throughout the years, he would take us to Krispy Kreme. It was our little secret. We'd get chocolate ice donuts and small cartons of chocolate milk. He was a good husband. 
He loved my mom in his own special way. One example of that is kind of in the later years of his life, dad wasn't working, and so he spent a lot of time at home. And on this particular day, he decided that he was going to go have lunch with mom. And so he stopped at McDonald's. He got some food, and then he came there. He said, I'm here to have lunch with you. He said, oh, did you get one for me? He said, oh, no, I, I just got these for me because I was hungry. See, in dad's own way, he was loving mom. Might not have been the most thoughtful way, but it was, it was his way. My dad was a sinner. My dad, in his heart, rebelled against the rule, the reign, and the presence of God in his life in various ways. But because my dad was taught the holy things of God, God's spirit worked in his heart, convicted him of the truth of his sin, but more importantly, the truth of Christ's righteousness. Dad came to trust in the gospel knowing that Jesus, on the cross, laid down his life to pay the penalty for sin and to give him life and to give him hope eternal. And in this church, and in ordinary ways, he would come to the Lord's table. He would participate in the sacraments where the gift of Christ's body and blood would be held out as signs and seals of the promises of God's grace. Dad would come here in ordinary ways on Sunday to sing and to hear the word of God preach, to confess the truth that Jesus was his only hope in life. And just a few days ago, Jesus became dad's hope in death. See, Jesus is our hope not only in life, but he's also our hope in the midst of our suffering and in our final moments. There are many things in life that can cause people to despair and lose hope. Sickness and death are two of those things. For the entire time that we all knew Dad, he was sick with type 1 diabetes. He was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic when he was a freshman in college. It's a terrible disease. I hate it. There is no cure. You just live with it, and you try to manage it. See, Dad was not unusual in this regard, and our family is actually quite common. My grandfather, my uncle, my cousin, and now my son are all type 1 diabetics. But it's not just diabetes. For some of you here, it's cancer or some other diagnosis. See, sickness and death are a reality for us all. I ride a motorcycle. And there's two types of motorcycle riders. There's one that's laid a motorcycle down, and then there's one that's going to lay a motorcycle down. It's just a reality. The question is when it's going to happen to you. Suffering in this life is a reality. Some of you have walked through it. Some of you have tasted these bitter tears. Some of you, it lies ahead. It's just a part of living in a world that's cursed with sin and its destructive force. Mary and Martha are experiencing this. Their brother had become sick. And so Mary and Martha call for Jesus to come to him. And I want you to see what John writes in verse 3. Notice what John makes plain to us. The sisters send to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I'm not exactly sure why they sent, but I think it was that they knew, they had heard the stories, they'd seen the wonderful things that Jesus did, and they believed that he could heal Lazarus. They believed his word, and they were reaching out to him. Jesus does come, but it's too late. Or at least it's too late according to their timetable. Martha greets the Lord with these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
There's an accusation. There's a charge that she lays at Jesus' feet. You let us down. Before I was able to fly back last week, I asked Mom if she would read to Dad from the Heidelberg Catechism in their hospital. This is one of the great documents of the Reformed tradition. It's set up in a question and answer format, and it begins like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And in fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on. To live for him. So when those hurts come, when those questions are laid at the feet of Jesus, we must remind ourselves of the truth and the promises that God made. Martha's hurting. She says, if you had been here, Jesus, if you would have come sooner, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. But she makes a good confession of faith. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So in a real sense, She was doubting the goodness and the love of God for her and for her family. You can hear it in the question or the statement, if you really love me, if you really love Lazarus, you would have come sooner. In a sense, she maybe is blaming Jesus for the death of Lazarus. But that's why John goes to great length to say that the one thing is absolutely clear in this passage and in the life of every man, woman, boy and girl who belong to Jesus. When suffering comes... When death comes, it cannot be because God doesn't love you. It just can't be if you belong to Jesus. It can't be because God doesn't love you. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. Is it beyond your powers of imagination that when you are in need, that the Lord Jesus might turn? He might turn to his heavenly Father and say, Father, our friend is sick, that he might turn to the heavenly court and say, our friend is in need. I fully believe that Jesus could have healed my dad of diabetes, but he didn't, and that's okay. He's good, he's kind, and he loved my dad, and he loves our family, his diabetes. Everything he suffered as a result of it was not because God didn't love him. You see, Jesus knows the pain of a late night message. He got that message from the people he loved that said, the one you love is sick. So in those dark nights when the phone rings, Jesus knows how it hurts. He knows the pain that you're going through. Might be your dad or it's your mom, or it's your husband, or your wife, the one that you love and something happens. See, he's lived through that message. The one he loved was ill, and he knew that pain. That's why, as Mary and Martha go through this, he does not rebuke them. He does not correct them in their theology. Jesus responds. And John says, 
he wept. He knows the hurt and the pain. He sees what they're going through and what sin has done to this world that he created. And so he's tender with them. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, It's precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. He treats it tenderly. He binds up the brokenhearted. He heals those that are wounded. But like Martha, when we're hurting, we want God to fix the situation. We want him to do something. We don't want him to do something generic. We want him to do something specific. And so she doesn't really know what it is that she's asking when she says, well, whatever you ask from God, God will give you, so do whatever you like. And so Jesus speaks the truth of God's promises to Martha when he says to her, your brother will rise again. See, we want answers, and God gives promises. We have questions. We want to know the answer to how will you do this? Who will you heal? How will you provide? How will you protect? And God gives us the promises because he wants us to deal with the question of why. Why should God be good to us? Why should God do anything? Because when we ask that question, we have to come up with an answer. And the answer that the scriptures provide is this. It's not because of anything that I am. It's not because of anything that I do, but it's because of who God is. Because he's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who keeps steadfast love for thousands and thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God's redeemed people will rise again because he said it would happen. And because he makes his word come true. And so the same words apply to us today, Mom. Your husband will rise again. He might not be your husband, but it'll be better. Our dad will rise again. Hattie and Hudson, Bell Ann and Micah, boo-boo will rise again. To all of us, our friend will rise again. See, history isn't finished when someone dies, because history belongs to the eternal triune God. He's the God, not of the dead, but the God of the living. And so he says, your brother will rise again, and he will. See, for us on this side, eternity feels so final. Death feels like the end. But in the sight of an eternal God, it's just the beginning. Someone sent me this story in our church back home in Park City, Utah. You can think of death like this. We're standing on a shore, and a large sailing ship is about to leave. Friends and relatives of ours are standing on the deck, waving goodbye, throwing out streamers, calling to us, shouting our names. We call to them. And we say, look, there goes dad, there goes mom, there goes grandpa. And then a bell sounds, and the ship starts to leave. We stand silently for a very long time, and we watch as the ship moves further and further away until finally the mass is just a small speck, a vertical line on a distant horizon, and then it too 
is gone. We can no longer see it. And we say to ourselves, oh, he's gone. But gone from where? Just gone from our sight. Not gone from the sight of the living God. See, for that moment when we sigh, oh, he's gone, another one on a distant shore says, he's here. My son is home. The ship is coming home. There's dad. There's Robert. His ship has sailed for another shore. Another dimension in which he is alive. I just really quickly want to tell you about that dimension. We read about it in Revelation chapter 7. John, the same writer that we read earlier, says to this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then skipping down to verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. I used to read that passage, and it was just this nameless, faceless crowd, but there's one. We know his name. And he's singing, salvation belongs to our God. Jesus calls us to believe in him tonight. He is the son of God who comes into the world to take away the sins of the world. He came to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He came to my dad. And he comes to us tonight through his word. And if you trust him, he'll be with you. If you call out to him, he'll save you. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit at this time. As we continue to mourn the death of dad. We give you thanks for his life and for the many blessings that you brought to us through him. Comfort us and strengthen us with your holy comfort and give us everything that we need. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'd like to invite you to stand as we continue to confess our faith by singing Amazing Grace. lost but now I'm found 
was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believe. Let's sing it together. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. Please be seated just for a quick second. Again, thank you for being here. You have honored and blessed our family beyond words. And as you leave, we would like to encourage you on the tables in the lobby are these little solar-powered sun catchers that my dad just, I don't know why, but he loved those things. Um, if you would like to take one of those in honor of him, and I pray that it would bring you as much joy as it brought him, it would do us a great joy. Let me invite you to stand and now receive the Lord's benediction. And may the Lord, who has never failed in any of his good promises who does not leave nor forsake his own, may he turn your hearts to him so that you might walk in his ways and keep his commandments that he has given to our fathers in the faith. Amen. Go in peace.